Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. And my guest today is uh, Dana Goldstein. She's an education reporter with The New York Times. Uh, She's been a a friend of mine for a long time. She was a writer at The American Prospect. She wrote a great book uh, called The Teacher Wars about the sort of history of of the teaching profession and education reform controversies over the years. Um, So I got a chance to catch up with her to talk mostly about the Biden administration's preschool and community college proposals. We got a little bit into gentrification and sort of the nexus between housing and education. At the end, we talked a little bit about what's been going on with school closures and reopenings and the kind of role the administration is trying to play there. Um, So, you know, these are sort of aspects of the Biden administration that I think have not gotten a ton of mainstream play, uh, but they're really important. And I think uh, you will learn a lot. Another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Dana Goldstein, is an education reporter uh, with the New York Times and uh, an old friend of mine. And I'm really glad to have her on the show. Welcome, Dana. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, so I, I wanted to talk to you about some of the aspects of Biden's family plan proposal that I feel like the discourse has gone uh, very hard into the the childcare proposals there. But he had, uh, you know, there's a, a sort of a fuzzy, I guess, line between childcare and, and preschool, but he had these more sort of education-y elements, preschool for uh, four and five-year-old children and a, a community college plan that, that I know um, you've reported on. And, you know, I mean, I just wonder, can you, can you describe to people, like broadly speaking, uh, what is the president talking about here? Yeah, so I think it's really notable that essentially what President Biden is proposing is expanding our public education system in this country by four years. And that's that's really big. We haven't done anything like that for a really long time. So the expansion starts at age three, actually, with what he is proposing, universal preschool for three and four-year-olds. And I'm sure we'll talk about this, but it's a pretty significant departure from the approach to preschool that occurred under President Obama, which is very notable in terms of the ways in which the Democratic Party has shifted. And then he is also proposing two years of universal free community college at the other end of the system. You know, that wouldn't all be, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. It could also be for adults that are going back to school to get new qualifications later on life. Um, as is the case with, you know, a mom I interviewed for my article on the plan who is, you know, in her 40s and looking to earn more money and have more stability as a single parent. So this is um, a pretty big 
expansion of what has been, you know, considered the floor and the ceiling for public education, <laughs> free public education in the United States, which is uh, currently just K-12. The, the, the preschool thing, you alluded to this, but it's it's interesting because if you sort of loosely pay attention to politics, Democrats have been talking about universal preschool for a long time. Um, but I remember being on a, a briefing call with um, Obama administration people in, I think it was 2014, maybe 2015, they were they were talking about their universal preschool initiative. Uh, but what they meant by that actually was subsidized preschool for poor families with the belief that everyone would be able to afford to go to preschool. So like rich people could just pay for preschool and there was going to be subsidies. Uh, but that's, that's not what Biden is talking about here. No. And I think that's really one of the most notable aspects of this, both on the community college end and the preschool end. It is a truly a universal program. And we can talk a little bit about why he chose that and what are some of the things that have gone on in the country over the past decade to show the merits of that or potentially the drawbacks of that approach. But whether you earn $500,000 a year or $5,000 a year or $0 a year, you're eligible for this benefit that he is putting out. It is truly universal. It is an entitlement that we are all entitled to. And yeah, so in that sense, it's it really is genuinely like kindergarten first grade, right? Public school, everybody exactly. gets it. And we don't say, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you, you hear politicians, uh, w- when Democrats are talking about college, you know, people said like, well, I don't think Donald Trump's kids need free college, uh, but they, they can get free, you know, high school if, right. if they want. Um, right. and, and the, they don't, and, but yeah. <laughs> but they could, they could. And, and so, I mean, I am a, you know, beneficiary of this. And in Washington, D.C., we had uh, preschool for, for three and four-year-olds in our local public school system. Uh, my son was enrolled. He's he's in kindergarten now. But, you know, I I don't know. Like, I, I could have afforded to pay. I, I did pay for childcare when he was younger than that. Um, I thought it was nice. Uh, but what's the, what's the sort of policy rationale for yes. making it genuinely universal like that? Yeah, so we're also beneficiaries here in New York City where we have universal preschool for four-year-olds and it's currently underway to being expanded to all three-year-olds and is very similar to the program in Washington. I think it's a, a pretty simple policy rationale that I've spoken to about with Mayor de Blasio, who um, is the, you know, the brain behind the program here in New York, despite all of his other shortcomings. But um, when a program is universal, it tends to be more, more widely supported. It tends to be harder to roll it back. That was really important, especially in the New York context where Governor Cuomo was extremely reluctant at first to release the funds for this. You know, by making it something that upper middle class parents feel that they have a right to and they're going to benefit from, that's a politically powerful group and it makes it hard to claw it back. It also makes it potentially easier to make these preschool classrooms socioeconomically and racially integrated, which has benefits for all kids. You know, unfortunately, I think... The way the expansion has gone in practice, it often creates the same segregated patterns as the K-12 system, which is a potential, you know, downside. But I think, you know, probably the upsides of it being, you know, a very well-established program that sort of everyone supports and can't be taken away uh, because of that it has big benefits toward, you know, the more middle class, working class uh, families that are 
taking advantage of it. I think it's important to say that, you know, for the poorest Americans, there was already preschool (laughs) through Head Start and through many state programs. But there was sort of a, a donut hole or a gap of folks who really could not afford quality early education and so therefore did not have access to it. And, you know, states and cities across the country over the past 10, 15 years have experimented with different ways to approach expansion, whether it be means-tested or universal. And I think, you know, certainly the universal approach is the more, you know, Bernie Sanders-type approach, the less Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton-type approach. And so it's very notable to see President Biden choose this path. And I think it's in line with what we've seen from him in general since his inauguration, which is being, you know, pulled to the left, sometimes more reluctantly than other times. But um, this is quite notable. And and part of what's interesting about this, though, is that it it is a thing that that exists in several cities, right, or is sort of on its way. And we've seen a bit of a a kind of classic like laboratories of democracy sort of thing. And and they talked about this. They say, you know, some Republican governors have supported universal pre-K initiatives. So they have some optimism that these funds would be would be used. And it's it's a kind of a an idea from from the left, but not um not a pie in the sky idea. Like we have examples. Um but you know the the question of sort of integration that you mentioned, I mean, I think is is interesting. Obviously, there's a lot of segregation in the public school system, but in a in a means tested system, it seems like you would have at least in urban areas, like like a lot of, of segregation, right? I mean, like in principle, public schools are supposed to be open to everybody, and so you have that kind of promise theoretically of like schools that are open to everyone and everyone will will attend. Uh, but what did you you mentioned uh, about the rollout in in New York, and what did, what did you have in mind there? Yeah, there's a few reasons why the segregation patterns in the preschool program have not been maybe what you know, we would hope to see. I think the first is obviously residential segregation and with, especially with little kids, you know, this, it's, you know, more practical to keep them close to home. They need to be walked to school, stuff like that. Two other reasons why, I mean, for the poorest kids, there was already a lot of state funding and Head Start funding. And those kids were sort of in those programs and those families were connected to those programs. And that has not changed under this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those families may not be exploring the more wide landscape um, available because they're familiar with those programs that are located in their neighborhoods. You know, a third reason is that there's not enough space in the public school buildings that serve elementary school to host all of these new preschool spots in New York City. Mm-hmm. Like everything else in our city, it all comes down to real estate. Mm-hmm. So what happened is they had to bring in private providers to create the spots. And what they did is if you were already paying for childcare at that private place, you got to stay on as a free student in the universal program. So you can guess that if it costs, you know, $26,000 to be there at age two and you stay on at age three, you can guess, you know, the makeup of the families that were paying that price previously. So these are some of the reasons why. Oh, that's interesting. You know, we don't see necessarily the integration that we would hope. Because in, in, in D.C., when they started doing um, 
the universal preschool, you know, they have the same question about the school uh, space, right? But the but the general pattern had been that the elementary schools in the whiter neighborhoods were fully booked or oversubscribed. And a lot of the elementary schools in in the poorer and blacker neighborhoods actually had extra space. They were under-enrolled because people had been wanting to go to charters or wanting to go to the whiter schools, essentially. So there were more spaces in the majority-minority schools, and I think it it pulled more um, white families into the uh, minority majority uh, school districts because there were spaces available. Because as you say, I mean, like the younger the kid is, right, the more people just like want it to be a convenient walk. Yes, we see that dynamic in certain neighborhoods in New York City too, including mm-hmm. in the one where I live. And I think the, the issue there is like, there's only such a small handful of neighborhoods where that dynamic is present. It, you know, mm-hmm. it it takes place at a certain, very certain spot on the gentrification curve. Right. So, you know, in my neighborhood in Clinton Hill, which is in central Brooklyn, you know, we do see that, that some schools since the advent of the, the pre-K program, especially you see that the younger classrooms are much more heavily white than the older classrooms. But this is a function both of the preschool program drawing students into the building, which is positive, but it's also a function of gentrification and displacement, which is, you know, more mixed phenomenon. So, it's um, it's complicated, yeah. and I, I think probably, you know, the dynamics in D.C. and New York are fairly similar. Yeah, and well, I know you've, you've I guess, literally been to my kid's school. Um, I have, yeah. It's a times. fantastic school. <laughs> it is. No, I mean, it's it's great, uh, but you really do see, I mean, you do see the um, ethnic and, and, and racial mix change as you get into the kind yes. of older grades, and some of that is the gentrification of the neighborhood has changed over time. Some of that is sort of selective uh, disenrollment by, you know, affluent families of older kids. Uh, and, you know, but I mean, it's one thing people think about in the neighborhood is like, well, okay, it was good. It, it helped make the school more integrated, which is something people wanted to do. Uh, but then does that become like an accelerant of the gentrification, right? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, well, we have a million housing podcasts in the weeds, yeah. but it's a, it's like, you know, it's, it's a very, the, the interconnection is very troubling because it's like everybody, like you want the schools to be better, right? But you don't want that to turn into its own, like, well, now we've like gentrified the public schools themselves and people people can't come in. Yeah, no, it's it's it is a troubling dynamic and I think um difficult to sort out one's own personal choices within it. Um <laughs> you know, there's a great um book coming out by a writer named Courtney Martin who describes, you know, sending her white daughter to a majority black school in Oakland, California. And how she then, you know, became the mom that other, you know, college educated moms in the neighborhood would call to see, hey, hey, could I be comfortable at that school? Um, is it a rich curriculum? Is it something that I would want for my child? And as enthusiastic as she was about the experience, you know, she was troubled by the fact that for every seat one of these peer demographic peers of her would take, you know, there might be one less seat for a child for whom, you know, maybe mom and grandma attended this school. And while they can no longer afford to live in the neighborhood, they're, they're driving in from another neighborhood to maintain the tie. And, and certainly we see that dynamic across the country. But I think, you know, when you, you ask the question of, should we be providing, 
you know, universal benefits. These are some of the really complicated pros and cons that come into the conversation. And, and any conversation about school equity really cannot be divorced from housing issues for these reasons. Right. But so what's the what's the sort of basic like case for preschool? I mean, I, I remember I saw the, the president's speech. He did, I think, like an ad lib where he was like, this is real school. And, you know, I, I guess trying to draw a distinction between like an educational setting and a, and a childcare um, c- kind of thing. But like, what's the what's the argument for it? I mean, obviously, traditionally, we haven't done schooling with kids of that age. And now they want to make a change. Um, it's just like it's convenient if you have children, they, they need to go somewhere. Um, but like, what's the what's the sort of hope for outcome here? Yeah, I mean, I think when you're talking about kids, the outcome you hope for is definitely getting them ready for kindergarten. So many of the, you know, opportunity or achievement gaps that we see on the first day of kindergarten in terms of early pre-reading skills or pre-math skills can be closed, hopefully, at an earlier age. You know, so much of the gaps that we talk about through the education system actually emerge in the first five years of life whether it is in utero or in babyhood and certainly in early childhood. So having kids work with early educators who are specifically trained in child development and, you know, how to start with letter sounds at age three and four or, you know, having really intentional environments where play itself can be used as a tool to building um, those pre-academic skills, not in a way where you're lining little kids up in a row and lecturing at them because that's not effective. But, you know, talk about purposeful play and, and the opportunity for play to be educational. And it really takes thoughtful, well-trained adults to do that. You know, his the Biden's proposal calls for, I believe, a $15 minimum wage for these workers. And I think another element of skepticism is that just really not being enough to attract um, the stability in the workforce that would be necessary here. But, um, you know, that's something that will be continue to be debated. I think there's also another element of this, which is really important, which is this is about parents as well and the workforce and especially about allowing women to get to work. And we've seen with the decline in women's labor force participation during the pandemic that this can be a crisis you know, for women individually and certainly for families and less income being earned because schools are closed and parents are fearful to send their children to school or childcare. So certainly providing this benefit would help, you know, mothers in particular increase their hours of paid work in ways that are are hopefully positive for the economy as a whole and for families. I mean, that's a, that's a really good point on the, um, the, the pay issue, you know, I mean, obviously $15 an hour is higher than the minimum wage. It's higher than many people are earning today. So I don't want to, um, you, you, you don't want to like sneer at that. That would be a good step up for a lot of people, but it is, that does like, that sounds low to me in terms of if you want to recruit really well qualified, highly professional people. I mean, I, I, you know, I've having spoken to, um, like my son's preschool teachers, like they, they like, they like know a lot of stuff, you know, yeah. like they're, they're not, they're not just, I mean, we've had lots of 
you know, babysitters, things like that, who are like nice people who are good with kids to do a good job taking care of them. But like the really good preschool teachers are trained in these very specific techniques. They had, it was called tools of the mind, I think, that they were doing. It's like, you know, like I, I couldn't even begin to explain to you what it is they're, they're doing. And, and I think that you, like, you have to pay probably better than, than that to get, you know, like to get really solid people if you're hoping to like close educational gaps and meet these these big aspirational goals. Yeah, certainly one of the issues we've had with the universal rollout in New York is there's, you know, a significant pay gap between teachers who are doing this universal preschool work in centers that aren't affiliated with the K-12 system and those that work in schools. Those that work in schools are earning more. So this is, you know, a potential problem and could lead to quality gaps in these systems in terms of, you know, where would the really well-trained, well-educated, well-prepared teachers want to work? And that's like, so in in New York, it's like a gap between the teachers who are like working in New York public schools buildings and other centers that it's been contracted to? Exactly. Yeah, there's been, you know, some gaps there. And so, you know, I think the overall goal of the early childhood advocacy community is to bring pay for preschool educators on par with elementary school educators. And we're, mm-hmm. we're pretty far from that. Um, you know, in many places, it's essentially a minimum wage job. And, you know, many women, women of color who do this work are, are you know, living very much hand to mouth, are the working poor. Right. And then it becomes, you know, I, I mean, and I think that's always where you get into the like the trade-offs in the policymaking, right? Like universality has a lot of benefits. Um, having a higher paid workforce has a lot of benefits. It, it gets very expensive. I mean, because the teacher-student ratios obviously are low with little kids, right? I mean, it's very it's very labor-intensive work, and that's why traditionally, at least it's one of the reasons why this has been such a low-paid sort of endeavor, right? But if you if you want to make big gains, you're probably going to have to you're probably going to have to pay for it. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that this plan requires is for states to foot a pretty significant, you know, percentage of the bill. And that's just another question here. I mean, will Republican governors leap to to try to, you know, cost share on this with the federal government? You know, there has been some bipartisan support for preschool. You know, you look at states like Tennessee, for example, but, you know, in recent years, we've just become more polarized, more partisan. and you know, the approach has often been to just say no to anything coming from Washington. So we just have to, you know, have muted expectations, even right. if this thing were to pass through Congress, which is another if. Right. I and mean, so in the, in the real world, if this passed Congress, it's probably more like some states, probably states with Democrats in the state legislature would find it financially easier to do a universal pre-K rather than that, like, actually you would see Every state. I mean, the the experience with uh, Medicaid was that, you know, all the Democratic states and some of the Republican states did an expansion where the federal government paid for 90 percent of the bill. And this is asking for a, a bigger state contribution than that, right? Yes. So what Biden is proposing is that states would eventually cover half the cost of this expansion. So there really won't be this program if states are not, you know, excited about it in a bipartisan manner. 
Right. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what, what sort of comes of that. But, you know, obviously it would still be a big deal. I mean, I think there's a lot of bluer states that, you know, are looking at this. It's a, it's a sort of progressive idea. Um, actually, let's, let's, let's take a break. And, and I want to talk about some of the more like political context for this. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. So you wrote a great book called Teacher Wars, um, and it's about, well, it's about teachers. It's about education reform sort of controversies. And it seemed to me that this initiative is a, you know, it's a change from how the Obama administration was thinking about specifically like universal preschool, but it's also just kind of a change in Democratic Party focus on like education more broadly, right? To just a kind of view of like, we should, we should do more, right? Like, like school is good and the kids should go to school more. Yeah, I think of it as sort of a approach shift from accountability to opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, when I started my career as an education reporter, which, oh my goodness, was probably about 15 years ago now, you know, it was all about accountability. Let's hold states accountable. Let's hold schools accountable. If we give the kids a lot of standardized tests, we'll have the data necessary for carrots and sticks in the system. And then let's hold teachers accountable for their students' test scores and reward or punish them. So that approach was a bit disappointing. It didn't really lead to the huge student achievement gains that were promised, I think in part because of some implementation issues, in part because the politics of that were really tough, and in part because it might not work that well as a policy approach. Um, you know, now the way the Democratic Party has shifted and progressive politics have shifted, we're focused a lot more on opportunity 
gaps. Um, you know, it's a time maybe more similar to the mid sixties in terms of how progressives are thinking about education. You know, let's focus on what we are providing to children. Are low income kids getting the same opportunities as affluent kids? And they clearly aren't. So before we, you know, obsess about test scores or accountability, let's make sure that we're leveling the playing field in terms of what the services provided actually are to students, how we're funding them and those types of concerns. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I mean, there's, there's was a lot of specifics to the sort of reform and accountability agenda, but the big, like the big picture concept was that you were going to find a way to like wring better outcomes out of the same base of, of resources somehow that if you, you know, if, yes. you, if you had more tests, if you had more, more this or that, um, people would, you know, do way better, um, with, with different incentives or something like that. And the preschool initiative is, you know, it's very different. It's not in opposition to that idea, but it's a, it's a different idea. It's like, we, we just like, we need to provide more resources. We need to provide literally more years of, of, of schooling to people and hire more teachers and, and do more stuff. Do you have like a, a strong sense of like, why, why that is like, how, how did minds change on this subject? Yeah, I think about this a lot. Um, in part, cause my, my book was published, you know, sort of that toward the end of that accountability era. And I mm-hmm. think of it, I think of it as kind of a history informed by that accountability era. And there was a pretty quick shift, you know, even in the months right after my book was published or right around that time, I think a few things happened. I mean, first we started to get data back on whether it had worked to institute, mm-hmm. you know, stricter accountability, um, teacher performance and pay measures in those places where it was experimented with. Um, you know, the Obama administration sent billions out to the states and most of the states reformed teacher tenure laws and made a lot of other changes to try to hold teachers and schools accountable. And there just wasn't a lot of evidence at all that it had worked to raise student achievement. So there was, you know, I think a lot of folks in that movement who had supported that had a real um, reckoning. Mm-hmm. You know, a, you know, there's a lot of honest brokers in that movement who would be the first to say that the results were not there. And there's a lot of different theories for why that was, but it did, you know, call out for potentially a change in approach or at least a wider approach, I think is what many folks in that educational reform community would say, just a broader approach. Um, I think another thing that happened around the same time was the rise of Black Lives Matter. And I think about this a lot. I mean, I think as we started to pay more attention as a country to the things that Black students and all students of color and low-income students were facing in their lives holistically, it became more and more absurd to argue that this narrow focus on teacher and school accountability was going to be the game changer that would close gaps Mm -hmm. between students. And I saw a massive shift in the education reform field from this argument that like teachers are the most important factor for students to this most um, more holistic acknowledgement that disadvantaged kids are facing a whole host of pressures, biases in the school system that are just a reflection of what they're facing in neighborhoods and communities, Um, you know, whether it's over-policing, the, you know, over-suspension and over-discipline of students of color. We can't really 
address academic gaps without noting the ways in which school has sometimes been a hostile place for some students. When you talked about sort of results coming in and disappointing, um, is that the like NAEP scores that that came out in 2017 or, or whenever that was? Yeah, I think there were two things. There were the sort of, um, first of all, a lot of these teacher accountability schemes were supposed to make it easier to get rid of bad teachers and replace them with better ones. But even though they were very bureaucratic, <laughs> they were still, you know, rating 97, 98% of teachers as adequate as the states started to show this data and as districts started to show this data. Oh, that's so, really interesting. Because, okay, so this is important, right? Because it was like a huge, like when we were starting out, right, in the Bush administration and then at the beginning of the Obama administration, there was this like tremendous discourse about how we were going to change the laws and we were going to replace bad teachers with better teachers. And there was there was an incredible amount of pushback against it too, right? I mean, it was like, this was like a huge political fight. Yeah. And what you're, and what you're saying is like, not that much actually happened. Yeah. The, the systems that resulted from this did not effectively differentiate educators from one another in ways that made it easy to decide, you know, who to potentially push out. And then if you were, say, to get rid of 10% of teachers per year, the lowest 10% performers, you'd have to go find, you know, a lot of people every year to to fill those gaps. And we often in certain parts of the country, certain grade levels and certain subjects have teacher shortages. You know, this is cyclical and it, it's not always the case, but it's not, it's not easy when we pay teachers the way we do and a highly unequal economy like the one we have to, to always recruit so many new people every year. Right. Well, that was, that was another big difference, right? When Obama came into office and state budgets were in crisis and, I mean, they were they were laying off teachers um, for for fiscal reasons, and so the question of like who gets laid off mm-hmm. like loomed yeah. very large, right? But then by 2015, the, you know, they, they don't have enough teachers. You have strikes in a lot of states. You have public opinion saying mm-hmm. like, "Hey, like we should pay these people more." You have less um, less of a budget crisis, lower unemployment. So it's like you know harder to like actually get qualified people to want to be teaching in your schools. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I went to Arizona where teachers were making like $35,000 a year and they had recruited people from the Philippines to teach public school. I mean, which is quite remarkable when you think about it. And I, you know, no, and I, and I, I know a guy uh, in Arizona and he owns um, Chili's franchises and he said that he had hired a number of teachers to man <laughs> to to manage his his you know his chilies because they they had college degree you know they they knew how to do stuff and yeah. they were making very little money. He saw it as a, a labor market opportunity to find yeah, and it you know, was. college educated professionals. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, these things tend to you know go in and out, teaching being counter cyclical, a counter cyclical profession. So when the economy is booming, it's not as popular. When the economy is waning, it's a more popular choice. It offers a lot of stability, for example, um, you know, generous, in some places, a generous retirement package. So yes, that was one thing that has changed. And, you know, I think also in order to do all these accountability measures, it required a lot of standardized testing of children. And guess what? Uh, parents were not huge fans of that, especially middle-class and upper-middle-class parents, college-educated parents, 
And this created, you know, the testing opt-out movement, which was prominent in many more liberal places and a resistance among families to some of these accountability measures, which created a big political problem in places like New York and California. So that's why we saw, you know, just a big shift within the Democratic coalition on these these issues. Right. And and so that's sort of where Biden has come out, right, on, on the other side of that as a more sort of squarely um, pro-teacher. Um, yes. he I, In the campaign, he had a proposal to increase the federal um, K-12 funding by quite a lot. That doesn't yes. seem to have made its way into any of these big initiatives, but I mean, I guess reflects broadly sort of where, you know, their head is at. Yeah, well, there is some money for teacher pay and teacher preparation, and I believe some teacher loan forgiveness in this family's plan. So mm-hmm. there are some carrots in here for the K-12 system, for his allies, the teachers unions, which have been very big allies of his, and his wife is very closely tied to. So yeah, certainly, you know, he has tried to put a little bit in here for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's, let's take another break. I should try to talk a little bit about the community college piece of this. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. You know, like any uh, sort of out of touch uh, media elite, you know, I have a lot of opinions about K-12 schools because I, I went to them and, and <laughs> my son goes to them. Um, but I have, you know, I, I have this, you know, the like very distorted view of of higher education that a lot of people in our field have, um, which is, you know, a lot of focus on sort of the most selective schools. Um, Biden has basically like sidestepped all the discussion of the sort of higher end aspects of of the higher education system and instead putting a big focus on community college here, uh, which is a longstanding um, sort of interest of, of his and of, of um, Joe Biden's as well. Um, and what's the I mean, what's the what's the deal here? I mean, who who is who is going to community college in America? Who is this designed to help? Yeah, so community colleges disproportionately serve first-generation college students, non-white college students, low-income college students, and they are a very big segment of the system. So about a third of U.S. undergraduates attended public two-year colleges or community colleges. So it's a huge segment of the system, and President Biden is pretty squarely focused on the public two years being the providers of this benefit which is a free, universal free two years of college to any American. And and I mean, it's, you said it's it's about a third of, of students. And I mean, in terms of racial equity focus that, you know, has been a, a big subject of discussion, um, I think this is a huge deal. I mean, the, a sort of stylized fact, um, someone from, from the education department told me just as an example was he said, you know, um, Pasadena City College uh, in California enrolls more Latino students than the entire Ivy League. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and so like if you were really going to 
care about what's happening to, you know, sort of underprivileged people, underrepresented people, that the focus on, you know, what goes on in these schools, what quality they're providing, what access do people have, um, is just like really decisive in a way that more famous schools activities, you know, aren't. Um, just like the, the scale is so much larger. Yeah. And to talk about, you know, the racial equity aspect of this, 55% of Hispanic undergraduates are enrolled to community colleges, 44% of Black undergraduates, 45% of Asian undergraduates, and by the way, 41% of white undergraduates. So it is a very big segment um, of our higher education landscape for all racial groups, right. but, you know, disproportionately for students of color. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, what is the like i mean what's the what's the proposal here exactly um cuz you know obviously free is is good people like yeah. things that are free uh, but i mean also I, I mean the the nature of sort of public two year institutions is that they like they they receive less funding it's not just a like a price tag question it's a question of like what you know like what are the facilities what are the what are the services provided yeah so this would actually be sending more money to them by, you know, increasing state and federal funding for those schools, but also increasing the Pell Grants that students, um, low-income students have to go to college. Now, this is a really important aspect of the plan and something that my colleague Stephanie Saul and I focused on in our coverage of it because it really has the impact to change students' lives in ways that hopefully will lead to more of them completing their programs in community college and going on to four-year schools. You know, currently, you may use your Pell Grant, your federal grant on some living expenses that you have only after you pay your tuition with it. Now, in this system that Biden is proposing in which there would be no tuition for students and Pell Grant money would go up, you could take all of that and use it for living expenses. And the reason why that is so important is that most community college students have a lot of living expenses that they're struggling with, whether it be rent, many of them are parents, so they may have childcare costs, and most of them are working. Mm-hmm. So it might allow them also to reduce work hours and focus more on their education so that they can finish in a faster way and be more likely to get that degree. Unfortunately, there's not a great completion rate at many community colleges. And that's, you know, an element of critique of this plan. If you're going to provide two free years of college, why direct people toward community colleges that don't always have a good completion rate? Um, you know, low-income kids who go to and start out a four-year college often experience more success than those that start at a community college. So that's, you know, some of the criticisms that I heard talking to policy experts about this. Right. So, so one issue there is sort of what's the, what's the cause of the low? Right. And that's endlessly debated. (laughs) Right. So, so, so the, the bet here essentially is that people are struggling to complete because they have competing, um, time and financial pressures. Right. And so if you, if you're working long hours and you have other kinds of problems, you're course of instruction gets stretched out over a long period of time you have which gives you sort of more opportunities to to fall off it's also just harder right if you you don't have time to do your coursework and the the Biden bet here is that by letting people sort of defray more of their living expenses they can sort of go focus and complete 
Right, exactly. And also there'll be more money for the colleges themselves out mm-hmm. of this proposal. So the hope is that they can improve themselves, right. uh, you know, using some of those funds as well. But then the view on the other side, I guess, would be that like these institutions just don't actually work that well. And that's why there's low completion rates. And that yes. and that when people go to more selective schools, like they do better and we need to focus on how to how to make that work. Yes. And certainly that's what I've heard from, you know, more conservatives and some more centrist liberals about this plan. Mm hmm. I mean, this goes back a little bit to the the accountability focus that I mean, it's it's a different set of institutions, but, you know, it's like what's what's in it for for you, I guess, as a administrator, right? Like as an institution, if people if you have funding uh, to sort of keep the doors open and pay your staff and students show up or not and they finish or not and it doesn't like matter to you, just sort of pumping more money into an institution like that and hoping for the best, you know, might not deliver. Right. And certainly, you know, there isn't really accountability built into this plan. (laughs) And that is, you know, I think going to be an element of critique from the center and from the right and potentially, you know, an issue as this is implemented. And is there, I mean, is is this something that there's like a a lot of research on like i mean you know in, in the preschool case like i'm very familiar with like everybody's dueling studies um on these kinds of things the community college topic i feel like is more at least as far as i've told it, it seems to like languish in a little bit more obscurity i think that is somewhat true i think there is really good work done i think some of the sort of career and technical focus programs in community colleges have a pretty high success rate mm-hmm. in helping students earn more money and find jobs a lot of people will say like what about career and technical education or vocational education or something president trump talked about a lot and it's kind of a popular centrist idea well when you talk about community colleges and many ways you're talking about the places that are practically providing that you know, we don't have a system of sort of high school, you know, a quality, robust system of high school-based career and technical or vocational education in this country. It really is community colleges that are providing that. So if that's a priority for you, this is, you know, something that you should potentially support. I also think, you know, something that has happened and has been written quite a bit about is the proliferation of the for-profit colleges, which in many regards or direct competitors to community colleges. And certainly the community colleges appear to be much more effective for students graduating them more effectively and with less debt than the for-profits. So to the extent that beefing up that system or providing incentives for students to go to those schools because they could use their Pell money for living expenses, that would potentially, you know, be a very positive check on what has been somewhat of a predatory industry for low-income students. And, and that was the, uh, the the Obama administration had this like very drawn out regulatory effort to basically make it harder for for-profit colleges to enroll um, federal student loan yes. uh, people. And this is like another, like a different way of attacking that same issue, yeah. right? As you, you build up the the competing sector. Yeah, so the the Trump administration weakened those Obama regulations on for-profits and the courts also overturned some of them. So this is, again, a different approach and one that the Biden administration is hoping can stand the test of time. 
And this one is also this is this is also a, a state federal match, um, similar to the to the preschools. My, my understanding was that the idea is that in the like in the aggregate, it's a seventy five percent federal program, but with some kind of like formula nuance based on what states are already doing. Um, so again, we'd probably see a differential impact. Yes, that's my understanding as well. Like sort of nationally, maybe 25% of the cost of this would be borne by the states, but it may differ significantly from state to state. Yeah, and if you um, listeners out there remember my episode with Kevin Carey, um, this was something he talked about a lot, which was that because because the existing state financing formulas are different, he was saying, and I guess Biden agrees, um, you don't want like a uniform federal rule because you don't want to essentially like reward the states um, right. for for underinvesting um, in, in, in their systems. And like other federal education programs, this is structured so that states cannot take the federal money and then decrease their own contribution mm-hmm. to either early childhood or community colleges. So they have to supplement and not replace. Right. Yes. And so that's always sort of the the goal here. Um, So, you know, it was interesting. I feel like, you know, Biden kind of rolled this out. He talked about it. These are big, um, you know, educational ideas. But it was like it was coming at a time when like the education topic that everyone seems to be talking about is just like their local schools and what's what's up with them. And I, I know you've been reporting on this a lot. Mm -hmm. And I mean, do you think, has, has the administration been trying to be involved in those debates or staying low? (laughs) They are closely involved in some of these local conversations in blue states and cities about reopening, but try to do so in a way that's unobtrusive and will not disrupt, you know, what they see as the potential movement for progress locally. Like, for example, when, you know, the reopening conversation in Chicago had led that city to the brink of a teacher strike, there were phone calls back and forth, you know, to Washington, to the White House, between Mayor Lori Lightfoot, the union, the Biden team. And, you know, Lori Lightfoot told me she appreciated them staying out of the fray publicly. Mm-hmm. But certainly they were, you know, somewhat involved behind the scenes. You know, the president's approach to school reopening has been to provide a lot of money mm-hmm. uh, to schools through these different various programs and, you know, the stimulus that was already passed, the Rescue Act. And to say, look, you have the money to lower class sizes if you need to, to keep things safe in the building or to do increased uh, hygiene or ventilation. Now that you have this money, like go forth and reopen schools. I think what has been, you know, dissatisfying to many parents who are still, you know, struggling with remote school or hybrid school schedules in blue parts of the country because red parts of the country have opened schools pretty much. And we can discuss that more if you like, but you know, what was frustrating is that, you know, in his speech to Congress, he celebrated the reopening of schools and did not acknowledge that it's still a minority of students that are in, you know, full five-day-a-week traditional school in this country. And so it doesn't feel to families out here in the country like we're back to normal and it's that celebratory moment. Um, you know, his goal of having most schools open part of the time by the end of the year came true. But it was just, it was a very, very modest goal. Um, You know, I think we're looking at, you know, 80, 90% of teachers in most places vaccinated at this point. Um, You know, the CDC had said it would be safe to reopen schools previous to teacher vaccination. 
now we're pretty much post right. teacher vaccination and we are still in this very truncated um, schedule in about half the country. So Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you know, what we have in, in D.C., right? I mean, it's like the schools are open in the like White House count of like where the schools open and where aren't they open. But students have the hybrid option. Many of them have opted into that. And then the teachers need extra time to do that. And so then the schools are not, they're not running their regular hours, right? Right. There's just a host of staffing issues from Zoom in a room. So middle school and high school kids, especially going to school in person. And so many teachers have medical accommodations even though they may at this point be vaccinated, (laughs) that they are doing Zoom school from a classroom because the teacher is at home or they're doing Zoom school from a classroom. The teacher is in a different part of the school building because they don't want to sort of mix cohorts Mm -hmm. of students together through the day, which is a CDC recommendation. But again, ought this to be, you know, rethought now that we have more science. Right showing that in-school transmission of the virus can so effectively be prevented with relatively simple measures such as universal masking, open windows, fans, etc. Not that there is no risk, there is, especially with teenagers who spread the virus more efficiently than younger children. But, you know, there's a host of issues here, the staffing issues, the labor issues, and then the school hesitancy that many families have, you know, it turns out. As I reported this week, that if you take kids out of school for a year, getting them back is not so simple, especially if you continue to offer families the option for them not to come back. You know, you tweeted at me, don't we have compulsory schooling in America? Well, since, you know, the Civil War to now, we have had compulsory universal education in the United States. We have compelled parents to send their children to school buildings unless they are formally enrolled in a homeschooling program. We have let that slip. Over the course of the pandemic, we have, you know, offered something else and we have not penalized in general. Some parents have been penalized, but in general, we have not penalized parents for opting out or even for not participating regularly in the remote option when children are not in school. And so, you know, taking some of these choices away from families would be the most effective way to get students back, but is controversial and is not a step that every superintendent or governor is ready to take. Yeah. And I mean, that feels to me like the biggest, I mean, you know, at this point, right, it's May um, the 14th, you know, the school year's almost over. But, you know, when I, I still hear people talking about like, well, will schools be open in, in the fall? But I feel like in some ways, the biggest question is like, will, like, will coercion be back? In right. Fall. Right. That it's like, you know, that the, that the, the system, I mean, clearly, like, there will be schools that are open, I think, is is obvious. But like, you know, pre-pandemic, it was like you had to go to school. And then during the pandemic, I think for like obvious reasons, like everybody like wanted to ease off and, and not give people a, a hard time. But like it's it's always like it's just challenging to like reimpose a system where, you know, if like 14-year-olds are cutting class, somebody gets in trouble for it, Um, you know, which is different from, I mean, it's related to like the CDC, public health, you know, all those kinds of conversations. But it's it's kind of like a a somewhat separate question is like, are people going to going to have to go back in? I I also just 
wonder, so part of what was in the stimulus, right, is an effort to sort of um, help people catch back up. Is is that right? Like that was a, yes. a provision Summer for- Summer school, tutoring, things like that. Yeah. Is that, like, is that happening? Yeah. So most of the districts that I write about, which are primarily, you know, urban districts, mm-hmm. um, they are planning to beef up summer programs. And, you know, some of them are working with outside community organizations to do this. They're absolutely using stimulus dollars. And these programs often have a in-person element, but also a hybrid option. Mm-hmm. And some of them are very academically focused and others also have some more fun traditional summer stuff built in, whether it's athletics or the arts. Um, some of them have a counseling focus as well for mm-hmm. social and emotional needs, which will be acute, you know, coming out of the crisis. So that is happening. And then there's the whole conversation, the education field about, you know, how do you remediate students who may have missed out on academic learning this year? And you know, traditional remediation where you sort of take last year's material and drill kids on it It doesn't work very well. It can kind of get kids stuck or mired in material that is not appropriate for their grade level or age. So Mm -hmm. can you kind of say, well, listen, like one of the most important things in third grade is fractions. So we will really work with this kid in a one-to-one way, teacher to student to make sure you know, he understands fractions, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on all the other parts of the math curriculum that are less relevant to fourth grade. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're just going to, you know, try to really enrich his knowledge of what he needs to know so that he can move forward. So that's the kind of new approach that's being talked about the most. I think fraction boot camp is like, that's my nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, sounds terrible. (laughs) God willing. Um, okay. Um, Dana Goldstein from the New York Times. Uh, thank you so much. Um, this has been really helpful. I know we, we, we got a little off topic, but, um, you know, I think it's, it's hard to talk about education, uh, at this particular moment in time, uh, without talking about school closures and things like that. Um, so thank you, uh, so much. Thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Chinakis, uh, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.